Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to another episode of New Books and Poetry. I'm your host, John Eversall. I'm so happy to be joined by the poet Lisa Olstein, whose new book of poems, Little Stranger, was released this year by Copper Canyon Press. In Little Stranger, Lisa Olstein's poems mostly concern themselves with the tension between the public and the personal, with the former always bullying its way into the latter. Olstein's book seems provoked into existence by our contemporary moment. Its urgency makes sense when one sees Little Stranger as a book that is appearing in the twilight of privacy, in which the delivery systems of information are increasingly networked and knowledge is aggregated and stored by powers beyond our agency. In America today, the individual seems trapped into making either two decisions. They can submit and retreat into total commercial fantasy, or they can devote their lives to resisting those that wish to know our every move so they may offer us the illusion of crafting our own experience, when in fact, by doing so, makes us apathetic political animals. But the poems in Little Stranger reflect a more realistic picture of the citizen, and it's Olstein's humility that that is her greatest ambition, because extremism is hoping to adopt all of us in whatever form it takes. But her poems simply do the hard work to make sense of our world, just like us, where the proximity between the public and private has nearly dissolved. One of the most provocative features of contemporary life might be the dissolution of boundaries where formerly held categories of the physical now blur and lose their singularity, making personal experience a hybrid of the personal and the political, a hybrid of the domestic and the civic, a hybrid of the commercial and the familial. Holstein's poetry seems particularly sensitive to the new remixes of daily life, and her language reconciles this almost seamlessly, but also fights it at times with her naturalistic vocabulary by not so much accepting the new reality and adopting a lexicon of cold utility, but tolerating it and integrating it into a still recognizable language so that she may still communicate with us, human to human, which gives her poems its moral integrity. Lisa Olstein, welcome to New Books and Poetry. Thank you so much. It's really great to be here. Um, before we get started and taking a look at your book, uh, we're going to kind of unpack your personal life just a little bit. And if you could tell us, essentially, where were you born and raised? Uh, and eventually, kind of, how did your relationship with uh, poetry come about? Yeah, I grew up in the Boston area, um, first in Brookline and then in Newton, and went 
off and did some wonderful traveling for a bunch of years, um, did college in New York City and lived in Greece for a few years, um, and then made my way back to the Boston area. Um, and then in my mid to late 20s, um, out to Western Mass, where I've been ever since, which um, I'm about to move and I'm looking back and, and feeling sort of that weird um, cyclical nature of time that as I'm about to leave a place, I feel closer now to the time when I came to it. So I'm, um, I feel like I'm revisiting, yeah, many of my Massachusetts lives, um, of the current one, which is about to end. But, um, yeah, so I'm, I'm Boston born and raised and I've been in Western Mass now for, uh, something like 13 or 14 years. And, um, poetry was, you know, was integrated into my early life in a couple of important ways, I think. Um, I think that I always had a thing for language. Um, and I remember being a kid and sitting on the beach. We would go out to Cape Cod in the summer. And um, my sister, who is more of a visual artist, she would always be drawing um, diagrams or pictures in the sand. And I'd always be drawing words or letters. Um, and I think, in part, my mother is to blame. Um, I remember as a little kid, whenever I would get just sort of over the edge upset and really couldn't be talked with rationally. She would just sit with me in my room and read poetry out loud. Um, and it's, it's sort of a strange maybe thing to do, but it was really, I remember it and it was so calming and it was peaceful and it was a way of, of her giving me company, but also giving me the gift of, of the company of language. Um, and that's, that's actually sort of my earliest memory of poetry. I don't honestly know how old I was when she started to do that, but um, I think I was fairly young. And then I had a sort of wonderfully eccentric, um, almost like out of a movie, um, honors English teacher when I was a sophomore in high school, and he was really passionate and really intense and wore a trench coat and a wool skull cap every day, and he was a varsity football coach, and his two loves were football. And um, poetry. Wow. And he introduced us to Shakespeare and to Salinger, and he had us do these really intensive creative writing units. And that's when I started writing poetry. No, it's fantastic. And as you went in uh, through your undergraduate years, and I think you eventually ended up in, did you end up in the MFA program at UMass? Yep, that's right. And how was that experience for you uh, as a poet? It was amazing for me. Um, I, I guess I was in my late 20s when I started the program, um, but I was coming off of having lived in Greece for a few years and then worked back in Boston um, in women's health and then actually done half of a master's of theological studies at Harvard Divinity School. Um, and I was sort of halfway through that degree when I realized, look, if I'm going to get an essentially useless master's degree, it ought to be in poetry. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I quit uh, the Div School, and I, I came out to UMass after, you know, investigating a lot of programs and applying to a bunch and visiting a bunch of the ones that I got into. And um, it was a phenomenal experience for me. I worked with uh, wonderful teachers. I had, you know, some amazing peers. Um, it was an incredible gift of time. And it was really a gift of sort of a broadening of um, aesthetic horizons and sort of conceptual horizons. Mm -hmm. I think that the poetry that I had most um, read and written up until that point 
was not, it wasn't incredibly far afield from what I found at UMass, but it definitely wasn't the dominant um, sort of aesthetic at mm-hmm. UMass. And, you know, a lot of people um, in recent decades have gone to UMass because they worship James Tate. And right. I, I like James Tate and I knew his work, but he wasn't the poet that I had grown up you know, pouring over or I, you know, super identified with um, in my early 20s. Those were other people. And so for me, I I actually think that was, um, it was unintentional, but it was a a great move um, not to go to a program where the dominant aesthetic was the one I, I was, that was sort of my natural resting place because going to a place where people were writing, um, different kinds of poems and reading different kinds of poems, it just really blasted open um, my sense of possibility in terms of what other poets can do, what I might want to read, and most importantly, of course, you know what I might want to do in my own work in my own way. I think that's a great point because a lot of students who go into the MFA program are, are attracted to a particular faculty member when, in fact, it's almost like uh, traveling to a foreign country in a way and how that can benefit someone that if you go and kind of surround yourself by a completely different aesthetic, that that can be equally as rewarding. Real quick, I want to I want to kind of back up uh, because uh, being kind of I'm interested in poetry and intersection with religion sometimes. And a couple of the poets I talked to. You know, some are completely agnostic when it comes to the issue, and some kind of tap into kind of a uh, a religious vein at times. Can you talk about uh, what initially attracted you to divinity school? Was spirituality something in the household you you grew up in? Um, what was that all about? Um, you know, spirituality was in the household that I grew up in, but it didn't. I wouldn't say it had much with the div school. I think what that was about. Um, at the end of college, I spent a guest semester at Harvard, and I took a class um, at the Div School while I was an undergrad doing that guest semester, and it was this phenomenal comparative religion course called Sun, Stone, Sea, and Tree, and it was looking at uh-huh. these natural elements um, across this wide range of world religions, and it was really fascinating, and I had just come back from living in a different culture for the better part of about two and a half years, and I was and that culture being, you know, modern-day Greece, and this was in the early 90s, it was everything from the sort of ancient Greek mythology and the ruins and the temples and, the, you know, the Minoan civilization um, through classical Greece, through Alexander the Great, and then on into the Byzantine and Ottoman Empire. So it's this incredibly um, varied and vibrant swath of history that I was sort of dipping in and out of in different ways by living there and by studying there. And I came home then to my own culture, which had that wonderful sort of um, unfamiliar feeling to it at first, um, as home does when you've been away. And so I was just really, really interested in what are the systems of belief that underlie our cultures and underlie our the ways that we sort of organize our our values, our ways of living, um, our ideas about ourselves and our world. And so it was this really kind of deep fundamental um, curiosity because I felt like I'd just been through this really kaleidoscopic experience and, and was feeling very much the sort of malleability of our conceptions of the world mm-hmm. um, and how much they're dictated by those systems of belief. Um, so I was working and 
feeling ready to think about grad school, and I, I looked at like course catalogs and applications for English PhD programs, and it just didn't look that interesting. And I got the catalog for the Div School, and the courses just looked so incredibly fascinating. And so I just I just applied for that reason. Um, I didn't have a long range plan, and if I'd really thought about it, I probably would have realized at that juncture that I didn't intend to be an academic in that field, you know, which is why most people get that degree. Um, Instead, it was just purely that it just seemed so interesting and um, sort of relevant uh, in an impractical way to pursue those studies. And so I did. Um, And and I don't, I, I didn't think at that time of getting an MFA. At that point, I was still, I was writing I'd been writing from high school on in, you know, I did it in college and I did it when I was studying in Greece, but it, I kind of was like holding that out as this like, yeah, you've really got to be serious enough. You've really got to, you know, make a real commitment if you're going to get an MFA in poetry. Um, and I'm not exactly sure why I thought that. And I, I think the culture around that has actually changed in the last 20 years. Mm-hmm. Um, but for me, I was sort of holding that out as this very kind of rarefied um, possibility. So I dove into the div school stuff, and it was completely fascinating, and there were a few things there that um, have really stayed with me in terms of my relationship to language and, and to poetry. Um, so I think now I'm, I'm maybe beginning to wander away from your question. But... No, 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 you're doing fine. Um, yeah, I mean, as you said, it seems that uh, poetry won that little uh, <laughs> that little battle within you, but uh, the two are like so essentially integrated in in many ways, and I think the attraction to the Divinity School makes a lot of sense, especially for a poet who is ultimately, you know, uh, pretty sensitive to the conundrum of being a human being in in whatever society or culture that person finds themselves in, and that these systems have, you know, uh, come about as some sort of expression of our of our attempt at uh, trying to figure things out and flourish and I can see why you're attracted to those. You brought up Greece a couple times. What brought you there real quick? Um, you know, I was in college, and I was interested in doing some time abroad, and a friend of mine found this little art school on the island of Paros um, where you could you could just focus um, on fine arts. And I was, at the time, into photography and poetry, and they offered those things in and among painting and sculpture and um, travel and other other sort of components. And it, it looked great, so I jumped aboard, and we both went and did it. Um, and she sort of stuck to the plan and did one semester and then went back to college, and I sort of fell in love with it. And my teachers were telling me, you've got to see Carlos in the spring when the wildflowers are blooming. And I thought, well, yes, yes, I do. And so I... Um, I stayed on, and then I ended up falling in love with a Greek person and um, ended up making that sort of my life for a couple of years. Sure. Um, yeah. So moving, um, kind of fast-forwarding then to your – I want to just real quick bring up your experience getting the first book of poems out, the radio crackling, radio gone. Uh, how – were you already out of the MFA program, and in that first book – where did a lot of those poems originate from? Were they hanging around for years? Were they mostly your kind of thesis from the MFA program? Or kind of how did the first book come together kind of in relationship to you and the MFA program? Yeah, it was my thesis um, manuscript, and I continued to work on it 
pretty intensively for about a year after I finished the program and defended the thesis. Um, and I was subbing some newer poems in and taking some older ones out and working a lot on the shaping of the book. I found that to be really challenging, the, the ordering and the sections. Um, and so that's mostly what I was messing around with. Um, the poems in that book, you know, most of them are probably from a, a three to five year period preceding um, its acceptance. And, mm-hmm. you know, probably a couple were a little older, but not much. Um, most of them, yeah. Or were from a, um, a certain time period, you know, not too far away from um, publication. But there is that sense for the first book that, it, in a way, it's the book you've been writing your entire life up to that point. Definitely. Um, yeah, and it has felt since then. I've been lucky enough to publish two books, and they have um, they've certainly had their challenges, but none of them has been quite so baffling as that first one, trying to put that first one together. Because um, you really, you know, there is, it's so amorphous, um, everything that you're trying to pour into it and, and gather from. So let me ask and, you. And, oh, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, you know, and then I, I did the um, the thing that we do, which is send out to contests and to open reading periods. Oh, and, um, you know, it was, um, at times it was, it was relatively easy and it, at times it felt incredibly brutal um, and it just sort of depended on one's thickness of skin at any given moment. Yeah. I try, I try still, I think really hard and I definitely try during that process to do some um, sort of functional compartmentaliz- compartmentalization where, you know, the, I have to in a way pretend that when I'm writing and the real work of the poetry, it's as if it has absolutely no relationship to something like sending a book out to a contest or even to a, you know, a journal. For some people, I think, can really bridge those things in a way that works for them. Mm-hmm. And for me, um, I have to pretend at least that the, um, that the sort of sanctuary of the writing is this autonomous, separate place. And then I kind of force myself to go about the busy work, the organizational work and the busy work of um, the business of trying to, um, you know, get your work out there. So, you know, it it was at first discouraging when it wasn't taken and it's, you know, first round. And um, then I learned to get a little bit of a thicker skin about it and to keep at it. And um, I think the hardest thing is that when you're in that position, you just, you just don't know when or if it'll ever happen. If someone said, look, you've got to wait five years, but then it's going to happen. I'd, I'd have been like, okay, no problem, five years. I can teach myself, you know. Um, but, you know, there's all that hope and, and all that disappointment. Um, uh, but for me, it's a little bit of, you know, sort of look away and, and half close your eyes and, you know, put it in the envelope and send it out there. Um, exactly. And here we are uh, three books later. How would you kind of uh, chart your uh, evolution as a poet from those first two books and when you kind of look at the poems in Little Stranger, uh, do you kind of recognize the same voice and poet, or do you see where you've kind of uh, grown as a poet or just changed? Yeah, I, think, I think it's definitely some of both. Um, I think, you know, I, I, um, I had the happy accident of getting a real break um, between Radio Crackling, Radio Gone, and Little Stranger by virtue of writing um, Lost Alphabet because 
um, the first book and the third book are collections of discrete individual, you know, lyric poems. And the book in the middle, in between them, is sort of a continuous lyric narrative in prose poem form, um, sort of conceived of as an imagined um, naturalist notebook. And so I just fell into that project when I... Um, when I started, did Lost Alphabet, it was, it wasn't, um, I didn't set out to have a project or to have something that was like a novel in verse or a narrative, but that's what evolved. And once that started happening, it meant that I had uh, about a three year break from writing those individual lyric poems. And so by the time I finished that book and got back around to writing those sort of one at a time lyric poems, a lot of time had passed. Um, And so I felt like I was able to return to it, you know, a little bit as a different person um, with different, with the experience of writing the second book under my belt, but more than anything, just, you know, I was at a different time in my life. Um, Some years had passed and and it felt really refreshing and energizing at that time to sort of return to this form that I'd been away from for a while. Yeah, that makes a Um, lot of sense, actually, with uh, Lost Alphabet kind of being characterized as a project because... You know, it's hard with those lyrical poems just to kind of, you know, you can't like automatically produce them. And I've always thought about the difference between those type of poems that seem, uh, you know, kind of, uh, like I said about your book in a way, like provoked into existence by, you know, personal experience or whatnot. And those books by poets who clearly have like kind of a project in mind. And, uh, you know, I think you did a nice job describing that those books that, kind of lean more to the, the project side can simply, uh, much like the literary critic writing critical prose, can serve as a kind of a respite from those more uh, demanding kind of mysteriously received phones. Um, that's really great. I want to start moving into uh, Little Stranger. And uh, how did this, uh, how did all the poems come together uh, for this book? You did say that each of them are sort of uh discreet and independent lyrics. Um, Was it a hard book to put together? No, it wasn't that hard. Um, If you're comparing it to what I found to be the excruciating process of putting together (laughs) my first book, um, you know, the second book had its own logic because, again, there was a sort of a narrative arc. um, And even though I didn't write it chronologically, I did order it sort of chronologically. Um, And then with this one... um, I'd been writing the poems for a few years, and then um, in the midst of writing the poems, I had a a child, and that sort of both accelerated some things and interrupted some other things, and it was about, I'd say about when it was, it wasn't quite one yet, Um, and I went away for a couple of days with with a huge stack of poems and my my computer and my printer to just try and assess what do I have here. I think I'm close to a manuscript, but I'm really not sure. Um, and I was able to sort of sort and put into to piles and begin that process that when it happens, it's really magical of seeing your work from a really different angle. So you know, when you're in the process of writing, at least for me, the individual lyric poems, the only the poem, only one poem exists at a time, really. And you're sort of fully into that however long it takes and sometimes it's you know it's three hours and sometimes it's three months but you know there's sort of only that one world and then you set it aside and you hope that a new world opens up to you for the next poem Um, but then later 
looking at the work in aggregate, you start to see the manifestation of, of themes or of forms or of ways that the poems talk to each other. Um, the things that were either unconsciously going on, you know, the whole time that, that I just wasn't aware of, or sometimes even better, things that only reveal themselves by putting things next door. It's like creating neighborhoods and the quality of a neighborhood, um, the way one house looks next to another house um, is suggestive of different things than if you'd placed it on a different street in a different block. And that, I think, is a really um, exciting fun way to start to be able to interact with your work. So I was able to sort of start doing that. And I think fairly early on, I realized that, you know, there would be these multiple sections, some of them with some fairly discreet kind of um, reasons for being and others being more those uh, those less explicit containers for groupings of poems. And um, I guess by breaking it into the multiple sections, that also helped me really wrap my mind around it. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. You brought up um, you brought up being a mother, and it's almost a cliche to talk about this, but I do have two quick questions about about that. And one is just kind of the practical work of writing. Um, did you find that uh, you know, kind of starting a family disrupted or challenged uh, your kind of routines as a writer? And then, kind of the second question um, about that is is that just as a mother, and I think I read recently an essay in the Boston Review kind of tackling this issue with motherhood and writing poetry and whether that should be, I think it had something to do with like whether, how does one tackle that subject? Are they obligated to tackle that subject? Do they reconceptualize that, that subject? Um, was that, as an artist, was that something like you knew you wanted to write about, but it was like really kind of hard to figure out how to write about it? Did you feel any particular kind of external pressures about like, oh, gosh, I'm going to, you know, if I write about motherhood, I got to make sure I do A, B or C or don't do A, B or C. So if you could tackle those two questions, I'd be really interested in hearing what you have to say. Yeah. In terms of time and process um, and change, yes, it, um, having having a child, you know, kind of blows everything up in a in a beautiful and and scary way. Um, and everything about the way that I sort of um, had control of my time or could designate time changed. Um, and the way that I came to deal with it um, while my son was young was once I was comfortable leaving him um, for a little while, I really relied upon these very short sort of mini retreats, and I would just find somebody's empty house um, you know, my sibling was going away. Okay, can I can I just live in your house for two days while you're not there and write? And I did that, you know, never as often as I hoped to do, but I found that um, they were sort of like, like if you're out there doing long distance swimming, those would be the rafts or something where you get to land and rest and breathe. And that breathing was, was having time to write. Um, so, and that was not something that I relied upon at all, really, before having a child. I wrote mostly at home. I'd done a couple residencies, but they weren't a regular part of my writing life. Um, so that was a really big shift. Um, and it worked, and it kind of got me through that time. And, you know, I think that things are going to shift, are shifting yet again. Um, and I'm 
integrating more writing time back into my home life because now it's possible. Um, what you can, you know, what you can do with a five-year-old is different than what you can do with a two-year-old around. Um, but to the question about, you know, this issue of motherhood in in your work, not in your work, in the life of poetry, it's a really, really interesting um, area. And I think I've read, I, I'm only at like halfway through, I think it's, is it Katie Peterson's article in Boston Review that you're thinking of? Yeah, I think that's it. Yeah. Yeah, um, I've, I've thought about it a lot more since becoming a mother. It's not something I thought a tremendous amount about before becoming a mother. Um, and so I kind of, I kind of crossed that threshold a little bit blankly. Um, I didn't intend to write about it and I didn't intend not to write about it. Um, I had, I had grown up you know, reading a lot of women's poets and in some cases making an effort to, because obviously historically there have not been nearly as many women as men. Um, and in some cases, you know, I gravitated towards, I, I remember certain poems that were um, about motherhood, but it was never a particular area of interest. And so I was sort of going along living my life, trying to steal moments to write here and there um, while I had an infant. And about a year after Having my son, I um, bumped into a friend that I hadn't seen it a long, in a long time at a wedding. And he said, wow, so much has happened. You know, how's everything? And then he got around to saying, your poems must be full of babies. Huh. And I stopped in my tracks <laughs> and I realized not a single one. <laughs> not a mention, not a nod, not anything. Yeah. And it, it was sort of amazing because, you know, it's a sort of obvious thing that I'd clearly been choosing not to, either feeling compelled not to include or choosing not to include, but doing it not at the level of consciousness. And it was like, huh, what is that about? And I realized in that moment that I, I clearly had some kind of an internalized taboo. Um, and I felt like I should look into that, um, not because I think any parent is obligated to write about parenthood um, or that any of our autobiography must be in our work, but more just because it was so hidden to me and and because I feel like as much as I resist the idea that there's anything I have to put in my work, I also resist the idea that there's anything I must keep out of my work. Right. I sort of want to have the fantasy of the work as this ideal playing field where there are no, there are no rules um, for or against. And so I thought about it, and I think, you know, I think my, probably my biggest fear was, biggest fears were the most obvious ones, um, those of sentimentality and a, a lack of uh, being able to see it in myself, a lack of being able to judge something that was sort of so emotional or so intense um, and so deeply personal, um, fear that I wouldn't be able to express it in a um you know, in a valuable way, in an unsentimental way. And then, of course, there are a lot of important questions about, well, what are we even talking about when we say sentimental and how much sexism is in that term and, you know, right. all that. But I was definitely afraid of sentimentality and a lack of, of being able to be sort of properly self-aware um, of my work, you know, in that context. And I, I think I was also afraid of somehow being um, dismissed, either, you know, entirely or having that work dismissed. Um, in the way that work gets sort of ghettoized um, as women's poetry or even, you know, we see it um, culturally or ethnically, you know, oh, well, that's, you know, it's good for a Native American poem. But no, 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 it's, it's a poem, you know. Right. 
um, it's good for a mommy poem. Well, no, it's, I, I don't want to write mommy poems. I want to write poems. Um, <laughs> so those things were all in play. And, and once I started to think about it, I realized I did want to write about it because I wanted to kind of reject the self-imposed taboo. And the way I found my way into it was um, when I'd been pregnant, actually, I had visited the Field Museum in Chicago and um, had taken to jotting down a lot of captions from their incredibly outdated dioramas. Um, they had these like 1950s era, you know, taxidermy, dusty animals and these really ridiculous kind of Neanderthal humans and stuff in behind glass and um, <laughs> these really lame captions. Um, and I found the captions charming um, in their lameness. And so I kind of went back to that notebook and I found a way to use those as titles um, and those uh, ended up being the poems I, I kind of wrote from there and came at it um, uh, with an angle of, I think it allowed me a little bit of distance, almost like, you know, human life in the wild um, kind of lens. And um, between that title and that that sort of um, askew angle, I was able to just sort of go there and write um, a bunch of poems that in some way interacted with um, that really you know, sort of the space of um, infancy, of having an infant and of having a body transformed. Um, and I'm sure, you know, there's tons of autobiography coursing through it, but I don't think the, any of the poems are, are sort of autobiographical or narrative in the sense that now you know what it was like for me to nurse. You know, there's, it's not that direct. <laughs> but but I did try to, to mine, um, you know, the, the sights and the sounds and the feelings and the... Um, the intersections of that experience. I like what in you any way those. Oh, go ahead. No, just that those became. Um, I think it, it maybe it's about ten or twelve poems that it makes up the second section of the new book. Definitely, and uh, I loved what you said. This phrase, internalized taboos. Uh, I think that is so true for poets that they have kind of whether they acknowledge it or not, they. They have those internalized taboos, and I know I do, too. And I was sort of scarred one time uh, at Columbia. Richard Howard was telling me a story about how he was sitting next to Auden, of all people, at an Anne Sexton reading. And she was reading a poem about her grandmother. And Richard Howard had claimed that Auden turned to somebody else and said, you know, something like, who gives a shit about Anne Sexton's grandmother? And I remember that story really sticking with me like, I will not be writing any poems about my grandmother. <laughs> and uh, so it kind of, I internalized that taboo about what's kind of frustrating about that, though, is kind of what is put in the position of ignoring some of the most fundamental events in their lives. Uh, but like you said, that you don't want them to be, you know, alienate people with their privacy or their sentimentality. And I think it's a real struggle. And I think you definitely, uh, you know, you genuinely wrestled with it. Um, in Little Stranger, and I wanted to ask you, where did this, where did this title uh, kind of originate from? Um, I'm I'm quoting Melville, but he's just using a common phrase. So he, um, in one of his letters, he's writing to a friend, and it was after the birth of one of their children, and he refers to the infant as the little stranger, um, saying something like the little stranger is doing fine, and. Apparently, this was a common um, term for newborns, which huh. is 
is amazing and wonderful um, and rings, in some ways it just rings really beautifully true because it's like all of a sudden they cross that threshold into this world and now there's this little strange creature that you don't really know yet um, <laughs> that's at the center of everything. Um, and, you know, different traditions and, and the different times and places people would either name a child right away or, or in some, you know, religious traditions not for a period of time and, and so... You know, they wouldn't even have a name for a while. Um, and I think that sometimes played into it, too. But I, I really just loved the phrase. Um, and I just to circle back to what you were saying about the taboos and stuff, I think that part of the trouble is that sometimes categories become de rigueur. And so if everybody, let's say you're, a, this is made up, but let's say it was part of being of the school of Anne Sexton that you had to write really personal poems about your grandmother. Right. Or about your horrible father or about your first sexual experience. Anything that's obligatory is probably going to lead to a lot of very bad poems, you mm -hmm. know, and that's, that's, it cuts both ways, you know, so to, to have areas of life or relationships or categories, subject matter or forms excluded, um, from, from your realm of possibility is horrible, but so too any obligation to perform any <laughs> right. de rigueur, you know, okay, I checked off that category, I wrote about menstruation, okay, done, now I'm <laughs> in this, you know, I'm in the right school. Um, and, and so I think that, um, yeah, I think it's, it's, it's troubling because it does cut both ways, and sometimes we see in trends um, these internalized, so that was a very explicit thing of like, okay, note to self, never write about grandmother. And right. I think that, you know, sometimes they're that concrete. And I think a lot of times they're they're subtle. And you, you know, the, the work that you're seeing around you, everybody's being ironic. And, you know, it, that either registers as a conscious attribute or it's just sort of subliminally there. And all of right. a sudden you start feeling like, okay, irony, that's got to be the dominant tone here. Or humor or lack of humor. It has to be really serious. Or And, and I guess that you know, the the longer I kind of work at doing this, the more I feel like I don't care what the category is. If it's a category, it's a bad idea. Right. Yeah, and that's so interesting that you brought these things up because I think they are huge conundrums for a, a lot of poets. And I think your book also kind of wrestles with this idea about where individuals uh, are very outer-directed and where they seek out kind of internalized validation and and a couple of her poems and I don't know if it was intentional or not seem to me to be arguing that one needs to to eventually settle on themselves as as the primary source of their own knowledge in a way and to sort of ride out of there um, but yeah I think I mean I think what you're saying too is it's a confusing terrain at times for poets and and especially I think in the current environment where, you know, it's just so many there's just so much poetry and people have access to so many different poetries. I think one loses sense of kind of the historical context that uh this stuff is gonna be you know, history's gonna eat a lot of this and chew it up really easily and that and maybe speaking for myself, I'm I try to be as interdirected as possible and not necessarily be codependent on the poetry community writ large and whatever's going on in it. But it's tough because I want to participate in that community, 
simultaneously, I want to guard myself against it. Um, I want to jump into Little Stranger. And the first poem I really would like to, uh, to take a look at and read and is on uh, page 73, which just kind of jumped out at me. Um, it was, I saw a brand new look. And uh, if, if you could turn to that page and before you read this poem to us, if you want to say anything about it or, or say anything about what we were previously talking about before we move on, that's fine. Um, so yeah, it's up to you uh, whenever you want to get started. Um, yeah, maybe I'll just read it and then we can, we can talk about it if we're so moved. Absolutely. Yeah, of course. I saw a brand new look. Truly now, they are filling the sky with robotic eyes, with automaton dragonflies, executing missions named after homing pigeons, wheeling 25 miles in 25 minutes through artillery fire and the long-eared mules they flew above, whose gift to warfare was steadiness pulling cannons through snow. Probably it is useful to take occasionally a bird's eye view, to see ourselves moving as if on sped-up film like ants through the colonies of their very long, short lives. We kept oneself contained in sand, sandwiched between clear plastic walls. It arrived in the mail. They were self-sufficient. I don't know if they were fed, but surely if they required it by mother, they were provided for just so, like us, all the years of that house. They inhabited orderly the rooms they built. They kept a graveyard chamber. One morning we woke to one soldier left, carrying inward all the dead who surrounded him. I don't know how this relates to what we call loyalty or love. I know that of the approximately 10 years' worth of books immediately available to me about the social insects for Missidae of the family Hymenoptera, I would happily delve into six months at least. I don't know when and where ideas of loyalty and love would arise in this literature of adaptation. We hold in one hand a set of questions. We hold in one hand a handful gleaned from sad experience. For a time, we are bewildered children. For a time, we are bewildered children dedicated to denying we are bewildered. For a time, we grow comfortable with the fact that in the face of time, we are destined always to be bewildered. By then, bewilderingly, we have a child of our own, first the size of a pea, the size of a lima bean, the size of a lime. Finally, the size of the idea of a baby hammering away with makeshift drumsticks on anything he can find. Without music, life would be a mistake, Nietzsche supposedly said. Right now, I can't remember if we approve or disapprove of Nietzsche, or if the Israeli Philharmonic has a stance on the matter, or if my mother does. Right now, I'm standing naked in a room filled with drumming, groping with my mouth for small bites of time, but the cornfield outside the window has been raised, so to nothing I'm on view but the occasionally passing mechanical eye. Lisa, thanks. That was great. Um, you know, this poem this poem jumped out to me because it did seem unlike a lot of the poems in the book and that the line and the voice, not that it took on like uh, the feeling of an essay, but it had a had a relaxed openness to it, and I think that allowed for a lot of terrain to be covered, and there's so many little important moments in this poem. What do you want to say about this poem? Well, thanks for that reading of it. Um, it actually, 
is one of the um, most recently written poems that made it into the book. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a late ad, and I do think it's a little bit, you know, rangier and a little bit less, um, in some ways, less controlled um, than than some of the uh, the other work in the in the book and some of the earlier work um, in the book. And I guess that I I think it's a nice example of. Um, the way the self is the terrain where all of these different um, forms of input and influence intersect and come to rest. And that mm-hmm. doesn't mean peacefully, but that, you know, <laughs> you were you were talking a minute ago about, you know, sort of anxiety of influence and how we have to rely on ourselves. And I don't disagree with that, but I, I think I also, um, the way I feel it more is that by definition, sort of we are these um places where all of this mixing and matching and and ricocheting um, is happening all the time and that the combination is inherently sort of unique for each of us and that's so there's this great uniformity in many ways um, and increasingly uniformity in the world around us, right? Any town in America has the same chain stores and increasingly any town in Europe has the same chain stores. Um, or we're all watching the same news, or, you know, there's this, this energy towards homogenization. Yeah. But at the same time, we're the sort of crazily idiosyncratic, unique, <laughs> mixed-up vessel where all of these things sort of enter and then make these new combinations. Um, and so I think I was exploring um, here with, I guess, trying to sort of... Um, to express and reveal some of that sense of the incredibly mixed terrain that we inhabit right now. And so, you know, on the one hand, we're reading in the newspaper about these drones that are, um, they're the size of dragonflies and they're made to look like dragonflies (laughs) so that they can buzz around um, completely unseen. And sort of, and then also knowing that, it wasn't that long ago that we were using mules to drag cannons um, across what? our battlefield. Yeah, I love that point you know, and in the poem. So the sort of mixing and matching of time and space and the unifying um, space or the bridge between all that information and the, the entities left stuck trying to figure it all out, that's, that's each of us in our own way. And so I was trying to mix sort of very impersonal um, details like stuff in the history of warfare with some very personal details, um, not intentionally, but that was just where the sort of energy of the poem was taking me as I was writing it. And so, you know, there really, I, re- I grew up, we had an ant farm and they did all die at one point and there was this poor last ant dragging everybody to the, oh, you know, God. the place where they stored the dead ants and, and sort of the way all this stuff just ricochets around. And one thing I'm very interested in associative logic, yeah. um, and how one thing makes us think of another thing, and there's always a, a strong logic to it. It's just um, not the kind of linear logic um, or rhetorical logic that we tend to um, privilege. So I was exploring that and, and also trying to play a little bit with um, the wrenching of syntax as a way um, to highlight that experience a little bit. Yeah, and I think uh, you could have, and I think another poet might have been tempted to do this is all that ricocheting and, and the self as the stage in which, you know, these baffling details play 
onto us and then which we latch onto to keep building ourselves or destroying ourselves and just that chaos that you just described and and there's no uh accident that you you definitely uh return to this idea of the bewildered but you you seem to me in this poem really resist you could have formally blew the poem up and said oh look you know like look how the poem's reflecting what i'm describing and instead you had the impulse to kind of take out the wattage of the diction and and the form and it seems that you sort of took control of uh you contain that uh that phenomenon you're talking about that busyness of the self and the world in the self and instead of making it making the words dance all over the page that you that you brought a, a particular amount of uh, order to it long enough, I think, which is generous in my mind for the reader to apprehend what you're talking about, um, which is a real generous move that I don't think a lot of poets uh, necessarily uh, make. And so, yeah, and I'm very, yeah, very sympathetic to what, how you describe it. Um, I want to move. When I, yeah, go ahead. Just quickly. I, I love it. I love it when I feel like a poem is speaking directly to me. And I know there are a lot of ways that language speaks to us. And the plasticity of language is sometimes something that I, too, want to highlight. But I also, and I think I think it's something that's true of this book as a whole and maybe is less true of sort of where I'm moving now, but the idea of a really clear voice to hold on to and to feel like you're being spoken to by is, for me, a driving force in a lot of these poems. Yeah. Um, and it isn't that it's the same voice necessarily. Um, it just has to be... Uh, a strong voice within an individual poem to make you feel like even if the information is strange or even if the, the concerns are bizarre right. or um, making leaps, that you feel spoken to in a convincing and intimate way um, by some kind of a, a made voice. Right. Um, and I, I think I'm so, I've been really kind of, I'm glad you brought that up. I've been wrestling with that myself and, and I'm realizing that certain poems that I read that the voice doesn't seem to it doesn't seem and it's kind of weird it doesn't seem to acknowledge that I might have a voice and mm -hmm. uh and that I feel a lot of times in certain poems that what you talked about is that clarity of voice that I think the reader can can definitely identify with and like goes to poetry often for that very reason I sometimes read poets where I feel like they they give me a very dense but hollow experience in which I feel like I've been abandoned to my own kind of, or that there's no camaraderie between me and the poet. Um, and I think yeah. your poems do exactly honor that you are engaged in, a, in a, despite the world we live in, human-to-human uh, -human contact, which is uh, the poem al allows and enables between an author and and the reader and i think that i think that's one of the greatest strengths of this book is that i feel like i'm in the company of another person and in a lot of poems lately i haven't really felt that way um but i want to move on real quick to page 30 and uh to the poem cold satellite i read in your biography that cold satellite is actually the name of a band that you write lyrics for so after you read the poem i want i would like you to uh if you don't mind uh talk to us about the poem 
But also, let's segue into a brief conversation about your role as a lyricist for a band and how that kind of uh, bumps up against or maybe complements uh, yourself as a writer of poetry. Great. Cold Satellite. In the second chamber of my fourth heart, down to the left of the third valve, is the room I keep for you, for me to think of you. It's where I found you, drowsy, half asleep, half clothed, with your eyes half closed. Lace the curtains with holes, you say, let me out. This is no room at all. Why don't you mix me a fucking drink, you say, or draw me a map. But all I hear is beating. A satellite passes every three hours and 33 minutes through our night-blackened sky. It sees the world in a ribbon's width, blindly, with steel eyes, and waves that read the air that write the air we can't read. It's funny. um, Some of the poems that have been turned into songs, essentially verbatim, they get really, really hard for me to read because (laughs) I hear the the song, I hear the singing, and um, you definitely don't want to hear me singing. (laughs) So, yeah, I'm... uh, It has sort of evolved into being that I'm the um, lyricist for this rock band, Cold Satellite. It's fronted by... um, this critically acclaimed singer-songwriter, Jeffrey Falkalt, who is a good friend of mine. Um, and there's a bunch of great musicians in the band. Um, my husband's in it, David Goodrich, and Billy Conway, who is in Morphine and Intruder Wright. Um, oh, wow. a drummer, and Jeremy Moses-Curtis, who most recently was playing with Booker T. He's our bass player. Um, Quite a collection. Great. Yeah, there's, there's really great, great musicians. Um, and it's... The project, um, it was born out of sort of another kind of, I feel like I've mentioned happy accidents a lot. <laughs> this was another kind of happy accident and then also a sense of real interest on both Jeffrey's and my part, um, interest in, in collaboration and sort of collaboration almost as a, as a potentially alchemical process. Um, so what happened was, um, I had finished my first book and I pulled out a few poems that I, I still liked but that sort of didn't make it into the collection um, and then I also had sort of poems that had only come halfway into existence or little fragments of poems and I knew that he had just finished an album and was we, I think we had a conversation about him feeling kind of dry in terms of lyrics and I just um, I decided to hand him off uh, some poems and some, you know, fragmentary pieces of poems, and I expected, if anything, that he would pull from it and sort of rewrite and stitch together and just use it as as fodder. Right. Um, But that isn't what ended up making sense to him, and instead, I sort of gave it to him, we didn't talk about it, and then months later, I got a message on my answering machine, and he was in a hotel room in California, and he had taken out one of the poems, and it was a complete poem that I had removed from my manuscript. And he had set it verbatim to music. Oh, my gosh. Um, and he sang it into the answering machine, and it was this really beautiful, sweet waltz. Um, that is great. And we both really liked it. And we said, okay, how cool. And so I gathered up some more stuff, and I also tried my hand really experimentally at writing with lyrics in mind, right. not trying to write a poem, but saying, hmm, you know, these, I'm going to try for these as lyrics. Um, and I've got a good ear in terms of language, but I have zero musical ability or talent. 
Um, so there's no way I wasn't conceiving melodies. I wasn't conceiving rhythms, um, any of that stuff. And it, it turned out that the way that we could collaborate was to never be in the same room, to never discuss it. <laughs> um, but he would sort of, he would take out the work. And with a recorder on the table and a guitar in his hands, he would just start at the beginning and he would improvise and just start playing whatever music the words evoked. Um, and so it was this very kind of initially very quick first impression, be driven by the music into sort of some melodies and some sounds. And then over time, he started to really, you know, hone the songs and develop them. Um, and he would sort of arrange the words. He would you know, omit things or he might repeat things, um, but he never, almost never manipulated the words themselves other than to sort of, I guess the word we've come to use is curate. He would curate the language, right. um, but he would stick with whatever I had written um, by and large, um, which is, of course, really a very different process than the way he usually writes his songs, where he does lyrics and music. Um, and so the first record, it came together, I think, he worked on those songs for maybe three years and he would demo them out and um, he worked a lot with my husband on them and we did collaborate here and there and say, I need another verse here or, you know, that kind of thing. It was this long, slow process and then finally we decided, you know, let's, we're going to make this record and um, we pulled, he pulled together this band and they had never played together um, in that in, in that configuration until they went into the studio to do the first record um, and then, they loved working together and sort of went out on the road a little bit afterwards and kind of became an actual band. And we all had a lot of fun and we said, let's, let's do this again sometime. And so um, this time around, I, I passed off um, complete poems and I also tried my hand more intentionally at writing lyrics. And so I think the new album is a, maybe about 50-50 of songs that I intentionally wrote as lyrics and then songs that are adaptations of poems or treatments of poems. That's really interesting too that the the band members uh they were just they seem like just uh I don't know the way I'm only imagining it, but they maybe that they, they must seem like relieved that you are doing this for them instead of threatened by the fact you're doing this for them. I think that um I mean, beside the fact that they love the work, but I mean, it's funny that we have this image of the musician as like wanting complete ownership of lyrics, music, all this, and that they are kind of in this collaborative spirit, not threatened by the fact that this outside lyricist that doesn't hold an instrument on stage with them is is kind of informing a lot of their work. Yeah. I mean, I think um, I think the person that it, none of the other guys, some of them write their own, you know, songs to contribute to lyrics but most the one for whom it's really something different is Jeffrey you know yeah. he always writes his own words and what he said was that it was incredibly freeing musically um, because usually he's bearing the weight of both sides of the equation and that by receiving the words and having the words sort of that they suggested different music to him than he might otherwise have written and so it That's kind of so allowed incredible. him to sort of stretch out in some different directions. Um, and then I think the other guys in the band, I think it's part of the appeal because the songs are a little, some of them are kind of straight ahead rockers or crooners, but some of them are a little strange. You know? yeah. They're a little stranger than the, than maybe than the average um, bear, and, and they dig that, you know, um, yeah. and are, are sort of interested in that. And I think everybody 
likes the the idea of um, how we trans how, how the art gets transformed. And so first it's this writing, and then Jeffrey transforms it by setting it to music, and then the band transforms it by everybody adding their voice and their instrumentation and, and, and changing the song yet again. You know, the demos that Jeffrey will do solo are really different than, of course, the, the final product that the band creates together. And so everybody, I think, has been, has been doing their art form long enough to sort of really value opportunities to, um, to go about it in a different way and to kind of get to discover things along the way. Yeah, it reminds me of our uh, conversation about your first poem you read about that bewildering experience of the multitude of things in, in the world that play upon us, you know, things, the news and et cetera, you know, and just the information that we're bombarded with. And, and that in many ways your work with the band has a similar like schema or blueprint, but it's something that is actually positive and healthy and flourishing. And it made me think like, uh, we're probably really good at, taking on collaborative things uh, just by the nature of our societies now and that maybe we should, yeah. cho- we should choose the, maybe we, the power lies in not trying to resist it and be the singular primary focus of knowledge, but in fact, just seek out those collaborations and maybe, and it's such a, I'm, I'm totally speaking off the top of my head, but that what you're saying reminds me of like, maybe things are becoming, since things are inherently collaborative, against our will or or with its permission. But what you're doing with the band seems something you can have some ownership of, and yet it seems to resemble the same way we encounter our daily lives at the same time. It's really, I don't know, strange to me and, and terrific. Thanks. Um, I do want to move on to uh, another poem, and I want to move on to page 65, and that is the poem uh, simply titled Elegy. And and there's several uh, book, I mean, poems in the book titled Elegy. And so after you read it, I was just curious if you could tell us uh, kind of what were you up to there with uh, this kind of series of elegies. So whenever you're ready. Right. Elegy. We see how the children cluster around the afflicted girl. We're familiar with the way cruelty accrues cruelty. If we kept them, all our secret diaries would read the same. Her blouse was high and would be fun to unbutton, ruffle listing to the left, to the right. All riders dismount. All wrecks are transformed. Which is the first fish to inhabit the sunken cockpit? How long before the fuselage is a safe haven for anemones? To render from memory, in memory, the sale of a cheek known first as electricity in the brain, then translated into the fine movements of fingers, is an act of love. But in this crowded portrait room, let's let's forbid all graven images. Let's respect in this way what we love and cannot touch. You know, this poem is so gorgeous. It's one of my favorite in the book. And and we haven't talked about it, but your ability to render the image is incredible, especially which is the first fish to inhabit the sunken cockpit was just, it took my breath away, really. Well, what were, you. You're welcome. What were you up to with, uh, there's how many other elegies in here? There's several others. Um, yeah. Well, how did that come about? 
Um, the elegy poems, they all um, originate from from some um, encounter with the death of a person and and attempt to um, move from that sort of originating place, um, not away from that that issue of death, but into into a contemplation that is not a deeply personal. Elegies are often sort of these deeply personal um, laments for individuals, and I was sort of interested in um, in coming at that I, the idea a little bit differently, and in, in part. Um, it's, I, I think that the circumstances allowed me to do it. So, um, it's not the death of, the, the death in here is not a, only one death. It's, um, it's multiple deaths. And it's, um, they're ricocheting off of deaths that I do have a personal connection to, but that are not acute, immediate, overwhelming losses to me of a very close beloved. Right. And so, I was trying to um, trying to explore the way that we sort of think about and move through um, and include bitterness. Um, the poems are they can they I think each of them has a little bit of um, of accusation maybe. Yeah, almost of, like a little um, tiny chip on the shoulder. Yeah, they're a little angry um, in some ways. And um, again, sort of not the not a traditional lament or a traditional celebration of a lost beloved, um, and a little impersonal in some ways, um, maybe for that form. Um, and that sort of it interested me on an intellectual level, and it also um, was felt like an important kind of in each case trying to figure something out um, in relationship to a real death that did matter to me. Um, yeah, I where think- I maybe had the luxury to explore it at a little bit more of a distance perhaps. Yeah, I think uh I think they're very, very successful in in the way in which Yeah, and it's funny because you bring up death and and it's how does one you know kind of tackle that fundamental fact, especially when you have the tradition of it having been written about in the elegy. And I think it shows a, a certain measure of riskiness and courageousness that you you kind of took the path to those elegies uh, the way you did. I want to uh, kind of move on to uh, page 77. It'll be the last poem I have you read today. Uh, it's called, actually, you know what? I'm going to make time for the... To the other poem I wanted to hear, and that was on page 76, The Queen is Dead, Long Live the Queen. If you could read that, I'd really appreciate it. Sure. Yeah. The Queen is Dead, Long Live the Queen. I've been watching this bear for weeks. At first, it felt really intimate, her fur pressed against the camera and that little chipstick she chews, and one day cubs sort of mewing all the time out of sight. We were having what I thought of as a really good day. I could see her aristocratic profile, and she seemed to be taking more of an interest in the den. When I noticed, there were 1,143 other people watching her, too. It's true. We are particles in a cloud of undifferentiated matter, 
It's true. Sometimes somewhere in a small room, a committee of strangers is deciding your fate. I want to go home, a boy whimpers from across the hall, from his bare-filled room. Thanks. This poem really spoke to me. Uh, just that it's true, sometimes somewhere in a small room, a committee of strangers is deciding your fate, and I feel like that almost crystallizes so much about uh, my individual feelings sometimes in the world, that one is almost a pawn of fate to forces just completely and mind-bogglingly beyond our, our control anymore. And that first, I just, the poem struck me, and I don't know, it's probably just me maybe, but the first descriptions of, you know, I've been watching this bear for weeks. You know, just that activity itself, uh, and that you can do it for weeks, <laughs> just mm. struck me as phenomenal. <laughs> Uh, and then at first it felt really intimate. Yeah, definitely. Her fur pressed against the camera. And what a, you know, that is so extremely sensual, just fur against the camera. And that little stick she chews. So I think you just do this amazing thing of just, you really know how to guide and drag the reader's eye exactly where you want it. And then that revelation, of course, where... The speaker says, I noticed there were 1,143 other people watching her, too. And I just thought, oh, you know, like, yep, never mind. (laughs) (laughs) Forget it. I can't have an authentic private experience. Uh, But the whole thing is screwed up in so many different ways because you're watching a bear on a camera, multiple people. It's like and I think that's the conundrum of like kind of watching things uh you know, uh, that are networked and, and you can watch, because I've watched like hawks on buildings, you know, uh, in nests. Uh, I don't know. I think it's a perfect poem in which the the longing for the private and authentic uh, just crashes all of a sudden with the realization that you're involved in also a communal act and and how you just have to reconcile that. What do you want to say about that poem? Well, um yeah, I think all those concerns that you raised are the ones that I was, you know, kind of obsessing on behind or obsessing about um, behind this poem and in this poem. And I think what's what's so confusing and troubling and true is that it's it's both. It is both an intimate experience and this sort of miracle that yeah, I I can watch the peregrine falcon chicks. <laughs> Patch on the library at UMass because they've got a thousand right. camp up there, you know, or I can watch. I'm literally watching this is live, this bear in her den. And it is true. I'm a human being and I'm being given, albeit a voyeur's view, but a yeah. view into this extraordinary, you know, sort of range of realities. Yes, yeah, tremendous. Any access. given moment. Tremendous access, and I think that you know, in this particular poem, I don't, tr- I don't mention other things I could be watching, but we they echo there. I hope, and you know, we all know it's like even just looking at a Facebook stream. You know, someone's talking about their morning jog, someone's posting new pictures of the twins, and the next person is posting, you know, live updates from a riot around the world, and then you can go to YouTube and see the you know the actual footage of people, let's say, being killed. And then the next minute, you're watching Elmo singing to his ducks, and it's it's oh, all man. true, and it's all so incredibly um, cacophonous and confusing. And so, on the one hand, these are genuinely intimate experiences, 
And then at the same time, they're, they're really not, you know, and both things are true. One doesn't actually cancel out the other, even though it feels like one should. Um, You you can't say that it isn't an intimate experience to actually watch this bear in the den. It is a form of an intimate experience. And yet you have to also recognize that you're watching on a camera. And at that very moment, there's 11,000 other people watching. And what does that mean to your idea of intimacy and the way you feel about this experience? And, and you know, it's just it's um, it's a very strange reality. I've I've always been really interested in um, I don't know how true this is. I haven't researched it in part because I want to keep believing (laughs) what I believe. But um, I have heard that um, astronauts who go into space on manned missions have have a very high in, incidence rate of alcoholism and depression later in life. I think I've heard this too. Yeah, and I, it makes total sense to me. I feel like, yeah, there, your mind gets blown. At a certain point, the human mind gets blown, and we weren't set up for this. And the rate of change and the rate of, of evolution in terms of technology so outpaces any evolutionary process that we as animals could undergo to accommodate it, at a certain point, it's like our system just fries, you know? And I think that, you know, every generation deals with it differently. And certainly there are people that, you know, that swore up and down that the printing press was going to be the end of us. Um, So I realize that this is a a chorus that repeats itself every generation or two. Um, Yet I think we, we live in a unique moment where, and seeing, the poem is very concerned with seeing and the meaning of seeing and, you know, what we have the ability to see and how that relates to what we know um, and who we are and to the to our fate. Um, right. Those are just really complicated, interesting questions right now, I think. Yeah, and that we, and I like that you brought up Facebook. I was reading some article, it was like titled Faux Friendship or whatever, but that we... We're just so we have so much more information about things, but that we experience so much less, you know, mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. and that there is this almost the way things telescope constantly in and out uh, almost creates this like pathology of proximity between us and and the thing we encounter. And I think you're perfectly right in that you it gets, you know, rightfully confusing and bewildering. But I think exactly what your book does, and I think it's one of its greatest attributes, is that it doesn't, it doesn't, it sees that there's no reason to take sides and, and totally like, oh, this is awful, or oh my gosh, this is going to lead us to some utopia. That your book is just this like very humane, genuine acknowledgement and wrestling with it. And I think when we see books of poems that are coming out of the similar concerns, uh, you know, I I often will kind of ask myself, what is the, the quality of the poets wrestling with these concerns? And what I am sympathetic to the way you go about it is that you don't let it hijack the form of the poem in which you feel driven towards uh, novelty of form to kind of visually represent on the page anything. You have this, you still kind of, honor the reader as still this this complete you know troubled and traumatized person that can still be communicated to by a poem and 
I think that is one of the greatest successes of your books is that it honors over and over again that the reader, you know, is a genuine person despite the simultaneity of that person's life. Um, but it, 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 that the, that the poem is just, it lays that experience out in such a, you know, it's, your poems have, what they do is they, they understand that it's through clarity uh, that mystery can be often the most terrifying. And uh, it's definitely, and so the last poem I uh, thought we could read for, uh, for our chat today would be on, well, I'm not going to go far indeed from 76 to page 77. <laughs> um, and it's called This Season. It's all about 3D. Um, whenever you're ready. Right. This season, it's all about 3D. I love my teeth and worry about them lasting, but in my coffin, they'll be what rises up toward you in the dark. I've been working out. I'm turning my natural weaknesses into my most distinctive traits. It pleases me to give you the answer you hope to hear. I blame this on my brain, its wired systems of reward and release. All I want is a voice to talk me through the night from time to time when I wake and can't remember the room. Shine a lantern on your troubles, the saying goes. But sometimes everywhere it is light out, or lights out. Sometimes everywhere it is raining. Everyone moves through it like hero victims in a horror flick. I can't see you. There you are. Lisa, that was great. Um, thank you so much for joining me on New Books and Poetry today. It's It's been such a treat. Oh, thank you for having me. I um, I think it's a great program, and I really appreciate your careful reading and your, um, your great thinking. Oh, thank you so much. You made it all, all possible. I've been talking to Lisa Olstein, the author of Little Stranger, Copper Canyon Press, 2013. And uh, if you don't have it already, go get it. And... Uh, and get a and get a necessary uh, anchor for yourself in your life while you read it. I think it is a beautiful respite um, from our fast-paced lives. Thanks, Lisa. Thank you.